You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 is the section we'll look at this morning. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. So this morning we're heading into a new section in the book of Colossians. These past several uh, weeks, Eight weeks, we've been looking over the Thanksgiving section, the introduction, the Thanksgiving, and, and the prayer. And now we're heading kind of into the body of this letter. Uh, this, this is where Paul is now going to take up sort of his argument, his reason further for writing the church at Colossae. One of my favorite Christian thinkers and, and writers has a phrase that he often returns to, and it's, it's a simple phrase, and we'll talk about what it means, but the phrase is ontology trumps autonomy. Ontology trumps, trumps uh, autonomy. I can't even say it this morning. Ontology trumps autonomy. You think, well, Darren, that, how does that help me? That doesn't make, that, those words are gobbledygook. Ontology is just the study of what is, of existence, of reality. So ontology, what is, takes precedent or trumps or overrules autonomy. Autonomy is just individuality, individual decision. That's autonomy. We are autonomous creatures. And the statement ontology trumps autonomy simply means that what is reality, what is has authority over any sort of individual expression or decision. Um, for instance, I've always wanted to fly through the air. Like, I remember being a kid, and I'd go out with my German Shepherd dog, Scott, and we'd go play in the pasture, and I'd look up at the house, you know, what felt like three miles away, and watch a bird just effortlessly fly home, and I'd think, boy, it'd be nice just to fly home with, you know, just, just to take off. And then maybe when I get home, fly to town and go buy a pop, you know, and then fly home. I've always wanted, and I still, in my bird watching, still would love to be able to just take off and fly across town, you know, whatever. But no matter how hard I may decide I'm going to learn to fly, I am going to fly, 
it was not possible for me then, and it definitely is not possible for me now to ever grow wings and learn to fly, right? That is ontology trumping autonomy. The reality of what is over that, that I am not a bird, <laughs> that's the reality. It trumps, it overrides my desire for these things that I want to do. I lack the physical composition. I lack the ontology, the isness. I lack the what is to make flight possible. No matter how hard I try, I cannot make it otherwise. Now, our world is full of the, the, con, that, the, the contrary statement right now. It's full of the nonsense that actually thinks autonomy can overrule ontology. That what you want actually is more important than what is. And you can make whatever you want. You can make yourself whatever you want just by sheer will of saying my autonomy, who I am, my individuality overrules all reality. And that, that's, that's the kind of nonsense that we live with. These days, if you want to be X, Y, Z, it must be granted to you that you are X, Y, Z. Ontology doesn't matter. Personal autonomy is king. For instance, to today's world, if I want to be a mother, no one can tell me that I am not. But that's nonsense, right? Because I lack the ontology, I lack the necessary biological requirements to make me a mother. It, does, it can't happen. Ontology trumps autonomy. No matter how hard I may want to, and no matter how hard I may say to all of you, you must refer to me in whatever way, ontology trumps autonomy. This is a very important reality. We must insist on this reality. What is takes precedence over what I want. What is ontology takes precedent over what I want. If someone tells me I, I can run through brick walls, they, tell, they come to me and say, I can run through brick walls. I could be tempted to say, all right, get a head start, go for it. <laughs> Let's see it. But a more kind and loving thing is to say, your ontology and scientific reality says, no, you cannot run through a brick wall. And it's more loving and gracious to say, ontology trumps your autonomy. You cannot do that. That is, that what is, is more important than what you desire. It may be tempting to say, let me give you a shove and take off that way. But it's not, it's not going to happen. Well, Paul, the reason why I bring that up, Paul, in addressing the church at Colossae, he starts at a very interesting place. There's difficulty in, in the church at Colossae. And I say that not to beat up on the church at Colossae. I say that because that's the reality of church everywhere. <laughs> there's difficulty. There's, there's things going on. There's, there's outside voices coming in and trying to take them out of their love for Christ. Or actually there's some syncretism that's going on of trying to say, hey, you've got Jesus, but here's some other things you need along with Jesus. There's some syncretism that's going on. But Paul doesn't launch into this criticism of the Colossian church. He doesn't launch into this argument of just pointing out the false teaching. He doesn't move directly into chastising the Colossian believers. Instead, he starts by pointing out the ontological reality of who Christ is. He starts with ontology. Here's who Jesus is. This is reality. Here is Christ. And I love this method. 
This is such a, this is such a, a, a powerful way to, to teach, to speak, to, to, to help others learn, is this reality of first and foremost, make clear what is good. Make clear what is real. Make clear what is. That's why we spent the first uh, half a dec- decade together, it seemed like, going through the book of Luke. <laughs> because what we were trying to do there is just emphasize who Jesus is. We wanted to put, out, put forward who Christ is, what he has taught, and what he has done. The teaching principle is, is something like this. If you wanted to show someone how to do maintenance on a car and you had an hour to do it in, and you've got, you know, you've got like three or four important functions you want them to learn on how to do maintenance on a car. You don't spend 15 minutes showing them all the things to avoid because then you really waste. You, you take that hour and you're going to show them first and foremost how to properly change the oil, how to properly check the fluids, how to, do a, how to change a tire. And you're going to show them what the right way is and trust that by seeing what is right, seeing what is true, that it will help fight against wrong ways of doing it. When someone says, here's the antifreeze to change your oil, they'll say, well, I was taught that I actually put oil in my, you know, that's the, but you know what I'm saying? That, that the best thing is to show what is and let that do the work of contradicting then false doctrine. And that's what Paul does. He puts on display, most likely again for them, the true reality regarding Jesus Christ. He just launches right into it. He says at the end of verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Talking about this beloved son, And then what does he say? He is, verse 15. He is. And he begins to launch into these declarative statements, propositional truth about who Jesus is. And what's the grand reality that he puts forward? Christ is supreme. That's the reality that he puts forward. Christ is supreme. He is above it all. Have you wondered how long it would take We've titled this series, Christ is Supreme. It's taken nine weeks to get to. All right, here's why we're calling the series, Christ is Supreme. This, some, some call it a hymn where there's lots of ink spilt on whether this is an earlier hymn or poem that the church used that Paul brings into. Maybe one even Paul wrote previously and brings into. We don't really know and it's pointless, but the, the, but here is this wonderful, beautiful section of Scripture, these five verses, telling us the reality of who Jesus is. And the main idea is that Christ is supreme. This whole section is just flooded with declarative statements about Jesus. I put up on their screens the, the text, and you can see... In the orange, or maybe you can't, I don't know, sorry. It's, very, it's, it's five verses, so I crammed it all in there. But you can see in the orange are all the he is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is before all things. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning. It's, it's not playing around with, well, Jesus is kind of like, or, you know, they're, they're very definitive statements. Christianity is based upon truth claims. 
it is based upon reality. It isn't, it isn't about high thinking or just abstract ideas or concepts, ethical principles, you know, moral, ethical re, uh, desires or directives. It is based upon declarative truth. Christ is. Here is who God is. Here is who Christ is. It is easy to promote a kind of Christianity that promotes mainly um, moral behaviors or, or certain positions on ethics and, and the way we should treat one another. And it's easy and very popular today to just have that kind of Christianity be put forward. It's just basically being a good citizen, a nice person. Christianity is more about an ethical behavior. That's unknown to Paul. <laughs> He's like, no, Christianity is based on truth statements about Jesus. He is, he is, he is, he is, just in these five verses, about the reality, the ontology, the reality of who Jesus is. Now, tons of implications do flow from who Christ is, but you cannot divorce those, those implications, applications, life principles, you know, how to live as a Christian, you cannot separate those from the foundation of who Christ is. That's what they all are built upon. And so then, who is he? And you see in the green, I've got something else highlighted there, but who is he? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things. Now, in green there is this repetitive Statement, and you can really see it in the Greek if any of us could read it. But it, you can see in the Greek, if you read the commentaries, that this repetitive refrain all creation, all things, all things, all things, all things, in everything, all things. So, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in five verses, Paul uses this refrain of all things. Do you think he's trying to make a point? I mean, if I said the same word seven times in the span of that, you would have a meeting with me later. Darren, you're saying this word too much. Paul is making a point that Christ is over all things. All creation, all things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created through him and they're created for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together keep their substance he is the firstborn from among the dead that in everything he might be preeminent through him he reconciles to himself how many things maybe let's try some ap how many things all things hey nice job i feel like a tbn preacher now uh, all things all things so What's he's saying here, it's, it's not hard to understand what he's trying to communicate, but it's massively hard to comprehend what he's communicating. The, the scope, like, like it's, it, you can get it, but man, it's hard to get how much he's referring to when he says all things. The scope is clear, but it is startling. It is startling. It's like, um, understanding kind of that the lights and the air conditioning and this amplification 
all comes from burning coal and wind turbines, and then it's pumped through tiny tubes across the air and into the back of this, and then it's spread out, and, and, then, and the way we turn it on is with a switch right back there. And we, you, get, you get how it works, but it's kind of hard to understand how it works. I was talking with a friend um, earlier this week about, and he's got a kid who runs cross country and he's running, I don't know, 60, 60 miles a week is kind of like his preparation, which I guess I walk 50 miles a week. Anyway, <laughs> that just hit me. Uh, but anyway, that's not running. That's not running. But one of his, it's like his 5K splits were like 16, I mean, under 17 minutes. And I'm like, how, how do you do that? And, and the answer to that is, well, you just, the same way you run it in 25, you just put your feet faster, you put them in front of each other faster. Like, I get how you do it, but I have not, but it's, it's astonishing that you can do it. I get that Jesus is before all things. Like, it's a concept that's, that's you, okay, I know what you're saying, but to think about everything, to think about the immensity of space and it's hard, I don't know if you've ever done this on the computer where they'll have those things where you can go out by 10x magnification and you'll be you in the park and you get further and further away and, and you span out like for five minutes and you finally make it like to the next planet and then it's like more time of, of going out and you finally make it to Pluto and then you finally make it out to the solar system, then you finally make it out to the galaxy, then you finally make it out to the further galaxies and just the, the immensity of the universe and what's Paul saying? All of that, all things made through Christ. He is supreme. And then you go the other way, and I'm not as, I can't speak on this realm either, but you go into the, the cellular level and we're trying to figure out what makes up quarks and whatever and trying to, you know, we understand how anatomy works and the atomic principle and all these little, and how neutrons and protons, we, you know, we can get small but we can only get so small that we can't figure out what's any smaller. Like, what's, what is stuff made of? Don't really know. But, but all of it, Christ made. Christ is before all things. Paul is communicating that Christ is the one through whom all was created and for, all, for whom all was created. It's massive. It's hard to understand, but it's not all that hard to understand. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of a nonsense statement. It's hard to comprehend, but it's not hard to understand what he's saying. Christ is supreme over everything. Now, there are a few things we could address, and just quickly I'll, I'll notice them. We're not going to spend much time on them, but um, if you look at verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If you spend any time speaking with a Jehovah's Witness, they'll sometimes bring up this verse as seeing that they have a, a false Christology, which says that Christ is a created being. Uh, he's, he's more exalted than man, but he's essentially like an angel who became man. Uh, and so they have a false, it's, it's, a, it's a heresy called Arianism. And they'll use this kind of as a proof text to say, see, Jesus was the firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation. They'll use that as a, a proof text. But the difficulty with that conclusion from that text is the rest of the passage. That Paul's point is not that Jesus was the first creation. It was that he was before all creation. You cannot be the first creation and be the one through whom all creation came. You'd have to then create yourself 
Three, it would create a circle that's impossible. He is before all things, all things created through him. This term of firstborn in this passage is, is giving his preeminence. He is in first place. He is, he is of primary reality. He is the firstborn. And, uh, Psalm 89, if you want to look into that, Psalm 89 verse 27 speaks of David, this king who is the firstborn, the highest of kings. But we know David wasn't the firstborn. We could spend a lot of time on that, but I just want to mention, don't get thrown off by, by verse 15. Don't give in to the Jehovah's Witness and their, their, their uh, proof texting that to you. That is not what the passage means. It is that Christ is supreme over all things. He's an uncreated being because all things were created through him. Another point that Paul makes through these categories that he brings up as if saying all things wasn't enough, this phrase, all this phrasing of heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, that was a, a Jewish parlance to like mean everything. Everything you can see, everything you can't see. Everything on earth, everything in heaven. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, and he's most likely talking about supernatural forces even there. Everything, even the supernatural realm, angels, um, all, all the spirits that are out there, Christ made them all. He is over all things. All things were created through him. Jesus is supreme then over creation and over the new creation. He says he is the head of the body, the church. And next week, we'll talk more about that. As Christ, as, as he is supreme over all things, he's also sufficient because of his supremacy. But that's next week. He's supreme over creation and over the new creation, which is his church. Jesus is supreme. The concept is not hard to grasp. And really, the application isn't that hard to grasp either. But walking it out, that's a little different. Understanding it, comprehending it, kind of, kind of getting the message, Christ is supreme. Okay, I can get it. But the walking out of that reality of Christ's supremacy is a whole other matter, isn't it? Jesus is over all things. But when I walk out this door, I quickly revert back to my autonomy trumping ontology. The ontology is Christ is supreme. Ontology trumping autonomy. Christ's supremacy trumps, overrides, overrules the reality of what is Christ is supreme, overrides our autonomy of thinking I am supreme. <laughs> I am in charge. And the way most of us live our lives is not if we work in a, in a confession, uh, confession experience would have to probably say, my life is way more of the time lived with myself as supreme as opposed to Christ being supreme. I live practically with my autonomy ruling over the ontology, the reality that Christ is. But this is, this is a gravity well to talk more about space stuff or whatever. But this, is a, this, is a, this reality, this ontology of Christ is, it's, it's a gravity well that, that once, you begin, once you see 
that Jesus is supreme. He's this God who created all things through whom all things were made. Once you see this truth about Christ, once you pass that event horizon, they talk about with a black hole, there's an event horizon that once you get to a certain point, you're never going to escape it. It just consumes everything. Once you see this reality that Christ really is supreme, there's no way of escaping that he is supreme over all things. He rules over all things. By all things, that means even myself. When you truly see Christ as the supreme reality of the universe, there is no area of your life that is left untouched or outside of the gravity pull of the reality of who he is. So we have to ask ourselves, has this reality gripped us? What areas of our lives do we still run with ourselves as supreme? The ontology of Christ being supreme doesn't really matter in this situation. What really matters is my autonomy. I am supreme. What areas of your life do you still run with as yourself as Lord? But there is no competing with Jesus. I stole this from someone, but I liked it. It's catchy. It says, he is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. If you can escape from the pull of Christ and his lordship and his supremacy over all things, then you don't have Christ as supreme in anything. Because by very definition, his supremacy is that he rules over all things. And if Christ is Lord over all, then he's Lord over all, or he's not Lord at all. Christ, everything that competes with him, especially in a Christian's life, everything that competes with Christ loses. Why? Because he's supreme. He rules over all things. Is Christ first in your life? Does the reality of his supremacy rule you or does your own autonomy rule you? It's easy to confirm Christ as supreme. Sure, Darren, yep, Christ is supreme. But is he supreme? Does he rule over all areas of your life and the decisions that you make? In your relationships, is Christ supreme? I mean, it's so easy to look at the way the world runs their relationships and the church is just going the way of the world. Our relationships run the same way the world runs the relationships because we end up being supreme instead of Christ being supreme. In your marriage, is Christ supreme or is your wants and your desires supreme? In your job, in your free time, with your money, all of these areas, is Christ supreme? When it comes to, here's the options that I have out in front of me to, to live my life, to do with my free time. Does ontology rule autonomy? What is that Christ is supreme? Rule over your personal preferences and, and whims? Or, does, or do you rule over Christ as supreme? Do you ever lose in your decisions? Does what Jesus wants ever win in your life over what you want? And as a sinner that we all are, that's going to come into conflict. Like, I, don't, don't take the Pollyanna stance, well, I always go with Jesus because Jesus and I always agree. <laughs> then you don't know Jesus and you don't know yourself because you're a sinner just like me. And that means that there'll be many times in your life where what Christ wants for you and what you want for you are opposing things. And who wins in that argument? 
Who wins in that conflict? Do you? Autonomy over ontology, over what is? Or does Christ? Is Jesus just a side dish on your plate of life? Or do you see him as Lord? Look at the pull on the things. Look at what pulls on the things of your life. What has the pull? What, what, what drives you? What takes you in certain directions? Is it your own autonomy? Or is it the reality of Christ? When it comes to forgiveness, no one in their autonomy wants to forgive. You want to hold a grudge. <laughs> you want the other person to pay. You want there to be justice. And what forgiveness does is says, I will take that wrong and forgive you. And if Christ is supreme over your autonomy, that's what happens. What will get my energy? Is Christ supreme over what goes on in my life? So, where does that leave us? Hopefully a call to make Christ supreme, but also a realization there are areas in my life where Christ is not. There are areas in my life where areas of my life where I still went out over Christ. This is where the gospel comes in. And it liberates us to confess those moments. To say, yeah, here's an area of my life. I didn't think of it that way. But yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there are these areas in my life where I am ruling over Jesus. And that's a bad position to be in. What the gospel, and that's sin. That's damnable sin. That's, that's condemning sin. What the gospel says is that Christ came and he lived with the reality of who what is ruling over his desire of autonomy for whatever he could have that being God. But anyway, we won't get into the, the weeds on that. He perfectly fulfilled righteousness so that every one of us coming this morning, confessing our sins, looking to Christ and his righteousness could be forgiven of that sin of letting our autonomy trump Christ's ontology so that we could be forgiven and then therefore empowered to walk out of these doors with the, with the joyful reality that my life is no longer my own. I was bought with a price. Therefore, I glorify God with my body, with my life, with my everything, because gladly I am not supreme, but Christ is. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would help us, every one of us, help me to see these areas in my life where Christ yet is yet to reign as supreme. I know that there is not an area of my life that you do not own. But Father, I pray that you'd shine the light into these corners of my life that I hide for myself or that I, I want to keep for my own protection instead of letting them go to, to the joy of you ruling as a good, righteous, holy, and just, and sovereign creator. Give us eyes, God, to see the areas in our own lives where we are trying to escape the gravity well of the immensity, the existence of the God who made all things, Christ through whom all things were made and for whom all things were made. God, give us broken, repentant hearts. And Father, give us eyes to see what a glorious thing it is that though we, in our rebellion, were running away from your supremacy. You sent your son into the world to save sinners. While we were yet running away, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. 
So, Father, this morning, as we even prepare for communion, help us, God, to be confessors of our sins and those who are looking to Christ with the eye of faith, saying, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner, and then rejoicing that there is forgiveness in the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, that we might be forgiven and empowered, filled with life, with new life, with the Holy Spirit to walk out of these doors, living in light of the reality, Christ is supreme. We pray these things in his name.